0: And welcome back to 007 by Seven, the podcast where we investigate the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel,
1: and I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we're looking at minutes seven to fourteen, which begins with Sylvia Trench receiving a card and looking across the table. As the camera pulls back to reveal the back of a man she's playing cards against, and it ends with M telling Bond to leave the Beretta. We're joined today by Jason Heck. Uh, a longtime friend of the show, Bond enthusiast, film critic, and um, just all around good farmer.
2: I I am a good farmer, <laughs> a bit of a raconteur. Um, a lot of people call me the John Houston of Cass County, uh, given my extraordinary skill with storytelling. But uh, huge fan of the Bond films. Um, this one is in my top five. Very excited to be here.
1: I should mention that in between these minutes, 7 to 14, uh, between Sylvia Trench and Bond trying to leave with the Beretta. We've got a total of three scenes uh, where we meet James Bond, uh, who arranges a date with Sylvia for tomorrow. He then goes to Universal Exports, where Miss Moneypenny has a playful minute with him before sending him into M's office, where Bond is briefed on missing Strangways and told he leaves for Jamaica in three hours. Then he has to surrender his Beretta, and we'll be talking about that, and his new gun and an armorer who we'll never see again. <laughs> yeah. So... um. We'll start with this introduction to Bond. Ter- Terrence Young said he ripped off the film Juarez, uh, in terms of showing details of the character before you see his face, which I guess the, that's how they do Paul Muni. I've never seen Juarez and I was trying to find the clip and I didn't find it, so that's on my watch list.
0: You know, um, I, I, yeah. I was I always think in this moment that uh, a little bit about notorious Hitchcock's notorious um, th- where where Hitchcock's a little bit more on the nose with it. He's like got Cary Grant before we've met Cary Grant in the movie. Notorious. He's got him framed up real nicely in shadow from behind. Everybody knows it's Cary Grant by his outline, but, um, adds the care, adds a little air of mystery to the character where I kind of feel the same way here. Um, it's a little bit more of a side angle. Um, if you know who Sean Connery is, which now anyone who watches Dr. No for the first time is like, Oh, there's Sean Connery. There's James Bond. Uh, but at the time, you might It's a little bit more casual, and you might not have known who you were seeing. You might not have known this was going to be your main character.
1: Not a chance. That's that's so amazing if you think about that. What must that have been like for somebody who didn't know anything about the James Bond books, so didn't know who James Bond was, except that this was a James Bond movie, never had seen Connery. I mean, they, he, we'll talk about a few of the films he had done prior to this. But it must have been really thrilling to just kind of look at that and think, Wow, look at this look at this guy and and listen, look at the authority with which he lights a cigarette and says his name, you know? It's yeah. really it's really fun. I try to watch the movie. Somehow when you break out the 7 minutes, it also makes it easier to just kind of like focus on that amazing introduction, which by the way, I guess Richard Maybaum had written that as his introduction in Thunderball and then since they didn't make Thunderball, moved it into Dr. No which is a film that has no casino scenes in it at all. Right. And it's really interesting if you think about the fact, how do we meet James Bond in the very first James Bond book? He's in the casino. He's, you know, he's complaining right. about how long he's been there. He's thinking about what com- the casino smells like you know, this late into the night. And, and it's, it's so they didn't have the rights to Casino Royale, but that didn't stop them from introducing James Bond in a casino, which is pretty awesome.
2: Yeah and I I love that it's you know he's there at what like 2 3 in the morning and and looks that good looks that immaculate looks that uh, perfectly accessorized and put together and is clearly also that lucky or at least that skilled with Chimanda Fair he's you know it's it's and I like that this one is um that that the Shamanda Fair sort of sequence is mirrored nicely in Thunderball where you know it, he keeps uh, encountering uh, with Largo, Largo will keep turning over numbers and flipping his cards, and Bond always has one that's one better. And it's sort of how he is with the, the hapless Sylvia Trench here. God bless her. Yeah, he
1: hits an eight and two nines in a row. It's <laughs> yeah. pretty sweet. No
2: wonder he leaves with a jackpot wad, that, that brick of notes, you know. He I know. He
1: he's kindly hands one to the dealer. He's very. T- he always tip your dealer. So he's, that was, he's a pretty, pretty generous
0: tipper. You see him tip on the way out the door, too. It seems like a a solid bill. I don't know what what exactly he's holding there, but the doorman seems very appreciative. So we can say one thing about Bond right away is that we know he's a generous tipper, and that's always good in my book.
2: Sure. He, you bet he is, right? He It's it's part of, of playing the rich man, but also why everybody remembers him and Bonsoir Monsieur Bond and, <laughs> right. and all of that stuff, right? So when he hands the guy enough money to go purchase a nice Austin mini or something circa 1961, he's uh, he's definitely knows what he's doing, taking good care of the people who take care of him. And you wonder, did he keep the money, or was that the firm's money? You wonder because it's a huge amount of money for post-war Britain.
1: He does say never on the company's time when, okay, me, when you're M right. asks him that's right, whether he the, ever sleeps. That's right, never on the firm's time, sir. So you're maybe right. maybe he, that's all his his winnings. To I mean, just
0: through the many many James Bond films we've seen, he seems to be independently wealthy. Correct? Like he can he seems to have money stashed away because when he decides to go. Uh, to disappear, he's always going to luxurious places living pretty well. I don't know. I've always thought, man, Bond must have some money statue. He always has access to a lot of a yeah. lot of cash.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. Whether it's the outrageously high performing espresso machine from Live and Let Die or <laughs> uh, you know, sailing off on a yacht in Casino Royale, right? Where he close he resigns and there he is on his sailboat in Venice. Right. I think you're right. He must have something more than a navy commander's salary socked away somehow. Oh
1: on the other hand in the books they make a pretty big point about what a modest lifestyle he has mm. and how the perks of the job are, are travel and, and all of these other things so I think that's one of the ways that he becomes much more of a fantasy hero he's always complaining in the books about his old Bentley that, that's uh, right Dad, yeah,
2: and, and, and Fleming really fetishizes it with all the you know the the supercharger and all of that stuff um, that you know the coach work by so and so and the Villiers Hearst Villiers supercharger or, or whatever. Yeah, he he really he hits on that. I think Fleming really likes the uh, the specifics of, of of all of Bond's lifestyle stuff. Whether it's the specific food that he eats, you know, the scrambled eggs that May makes him that are scrambled eggs a la James Bond or whatever. He I think he, he loves to fetishize all the specific items.
1: Apparently, Ian Fleming was big on scrambled eggs. Uh, there was there was some anecdote about him like at some high priced restaurant when he was visiting the set and all he wanted were some scrambled eggs and he was mad that he couldn't get them or something
0: there are in that in the those ian fleming letters that i've been reading the book of ian fleming letters there is mentioned occasionally people will write him and ask him what's the deal with the eggs <laughs> what are you fetishizing eggs so on and so forth it's uh it was a thing with him for some reason i don't know why but you know um, as the owner
2: of the owner of 14 hens i can tell you that eggs are no joke and that yeah. fetishizing them is not that uncommon at least out here
0: right well while we're on the subject of the book still mitch let's talk a little bit about adaptation for a second and uh we kind of he's dead at it the last episode about the difference between the opening now you already mentioned uh between the book and the movie you already mentioned that there's no casino scene in the book uh but in, in that we're not using the first book as the first movie and the f- introduction to james bond as a film character um Let's talk about why. I mean, why it seems obvious, but let's talk about very specifically why we would choose this as a way of introducing him as opposed to the way he is introduced in the book, Dr. Now.
1: Yeah, in the book, he's been recovering from a terrible uh, poisoning that's been inflicted on him by one Rosa Klebb in From Russia With Love, the preceding book. And in fact, From Russia With Love ends with James Bond possibly dying. And it was one of those times when Fleming was ambivalent about continuing with these books. And so he puts James Bond through a couple of almost deaths over the series of books. Um, but yeah, I think that if you look at the book, the way that it's built, you know, as opposed to the movie, is that it starts with M getting out of his out of his chauffeur-driven uh, black silver wraith uh, and going around to his driver, who was a former Navy guy, and saying the weather is so miserable, I'll take the tube home. Don't right. don't drive around in this weather. And his chauffeur thinks to himself about how M always puts the needs of his men first, and then M cuts through this terrible weather and goes into this nondescript building and enters his office through a private entrance so he doesn't pass Miss Moneypenny and proceeds to have a conversation with a doctor about one James Bond and the shape that Bond has been in as he's recuperated from these injuries, and they have a long dialogue about poisons. And then this guy goes on to tell uh, M that James Bond's physically fit, but mentally he is in a a, a fragile state. And M is not, he's ambivalent about it because on one hand he, he sort of says, well, there's this guy... Have you read Peter Steinkrone, who's an American physician, and he has a list of all of the organs that a man can live without, and we get right. this list of all of the different organs that a man One can live fifth without. One-fifth of your liver, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like
0: a whole description of, of of fractions of your organs that you could do without, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's and then funny. it's weird because M M then puts down. He's made these notes and he pulls them out of his pocket, like like you know, like he's gonna pull a ball of twine out as well and some pieces of chewing gum. He's got these notes written on little cryptic pieces of paper that he's been taking while he's been reading these books, and then continues to consult with this doctor, and then say, "I'm gonna send Bond on a an easy mission to Jamaica, so it'll he can still do some recovering." And right. uh, and and then asks for Miss Money Penny to send Bond in because he had said you know keep him keeps him waiting for five minutes has him come in, and then it's only that point that they he comes in that they have the conversation that we'll get to about the, the the armorer, and then it's only at the end of that after the armorer leaves that Bond actually gets the assignment. So right. it's a pretty visual passive way of introducing a character for sure and and not nearly as exciting as being at a at a casino table
0: exactly i mean this is yeah that's absolutely having your your hero um recovering from weeks in hospital is no way to start a movie franchise so good choice let's get him in the in the sexy you know suit or tuxedo let's get him in the sexy environment and let's have him just be cool as can be, and this is where it's going to set the precedent for, for James Bond forever.
1: And make a date with a beautiful girl. And then, yeah. of course, one of the things in the movies that's different, it's been three weeks since the killings in Jamaica happened uh, in the book. In the movie, it's just happened, and Bond has been immediately summoned, and he's actually going to be headed to Jamaica in three hours, despite the fact that he's made the date for tomorrow with this girl. Right. Um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about... Um, and then we'll, we'll we can swing back to the movie in a minute because I want to talk about that the casino and and the exit, um, which I guess we can just do not right now. I just want to say that as they as they leave the casino, note the set, because that's a Ken Adam set, and it's going to be redressed in a few scenes down the line. So pay attention to the steps that he goes up and the space of the room and see if you can guess when we get. To a spot later on where we're in that same space that Ken Adam has just redressed. Um but yeah let's stay in on the book. Let's talk about the the weapons that are name checked in this conversation, Jason. Did you did you did you happen to notice all of them?
2: Well the book, yes, yeah, he he covers all sorts of tiny uh, like basically concealable handguns and um I, I think he's he's got like everything from Tokarev TTs to um, he talks about like the, ha- I think like a hammerless Smith and Wesson, um, and something, some Japanese thing that I'd never heard of.
1: I had neither and a sour M38, which is a six hour, I guess. Um, that's the, so the three small arms that he mentions after Bond says that I've, I've fired the 45, uh, revolver and it's kind of like, that's yeah, a, that must be a big gun. Uh, he's carrying this 25 caliber Beretta that apparently jammed and on him in his right. previous mission and m says you got to surrender that gun and then the armorer comes in and and this armorer named boothroyd uh major boothroyd the name is a is an homage to a fan who was a weapons expert who had written to fleming complaining about the beretta and bond's choice of weapon and so here in the sixth book fleming brings in this guy called boothroyd who's going to give him a new gun Uh, But he says, yeah, he's compared, he shot 5,000 rounds, and so he's compared the Walther to the Japanese M14, the Russian Tokarev, and the Sauer M38, but has decided that uh, the first weapon Bond should carry concealed in a brand new uh, quick draw.
2: Burns Martin triple draw.
1: Burns Martin triple draw. In a fine chamois. Which which has some kind of a spring that helps yeah, the gun out faster. That's the right? gimmick
2: like you bang down on the butt or something and it springs into your hand, which is just I I, I keep thinking of all the ways that could go wrong. Like you, <laughs> you just your gun leaps out of your jacket or something like that, which just would fall into the sort of 007 having team any martini's kind of drunken gimmick. I just don't it's such a weird thing. I don't I don't understand how it would speed things up, but evidently some expert who talked to Ian Fleming told him it would.
1: Yeah, as long as you don't have a silencer in it, because the silencer right. is gonna it's gonna catch in your in your uh, in your holster. And so Bond and and Boothroyd both have a certain contempt for silencers and the decreased muzzle velocity and the difficulty in using them. Although Bond says, sometimes you have to use silencer
2: right which is I guess why the major notes when when handing over the PPK that you know it takes the brush silencer with very little reduction in muzzle velocity so and you figure with someone like Bond right it, how hard is it to just aim for the head or something important um, even if your, your muzzle velocity is a teeny bit slower to mm-hmm. still get you know a one shot kill how hard would it possibly be if you're James Bond and have put you know what would he say 5,000 rounds through all these different pistols
1: what a great job
2: <laughs> after at the first five hundred rounds, maybe, but after that, you're just like, you can't let me shoot at a melon or something instead of paper. This is killing me.
1: Uh, and then he gives Bond a second weapon, which is a hammerless Smith and Wesson thirty-eight. I guess again, he's concerned about the hammer catching in somebody's clothes or something. Right. Um, they still make the uh, hammerless. Yeah, 38s? I think it's
2: called the Smith and Wesson. I think it's called the Airweight Bodyguard and it's it's basically just a double action revolver where the hammer is completely concealed they they uh, <laughs> i'm actually gesturing which doesn't help anybody who's listening uh but the the structure of the gun uh, the back of the frame is actually it humps sort of over the hammer rather than being indented so the hammer juts out and you could thumb it back to do single action fire but it's uh it's i think it's called the airweight bodyguard and it's um yeah it's, it's a snub nose small gun that's Probably not great for shooting at stuff more than fifteen or twenty feet away. Um, yeah, and l- like all snubnose.
1: I think down down the line that gun gets used less and less and mentioned less and less. Even even Fleming decided that probably wasn't the best choice. Snubnose so revolvers Bond's-
2: have terrible recoil. They're really because the, 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 they're just very loud and the, and the recoil is very harsh. And so I I figure for a guy like Bond who's you know elegant and precise and all of those sort of things, um, that, that having a a snappy sleek European semi-automatic is much better than having this sort of revolver tucked into his, under his arm.
1: And and relatively useless with a silencer, depend, despite what Hollywood is constantly <laughs> telling us. Despite what is.
2: John Milius and Ted Post would have you believe, you cannot.
1: That's silence right. Can't the silencer su- on that Magnum right. in, in Magnum Force? I,
0: I, I believe Milius pointed out that that was. <laughs> he, I was think he, for, did. <laughs> he was not yeah, for He was not for that did. at all.
1: No, he makes fun of it on the commentary, which is pretty pretty amusing commentary. So then, uh, after this business of of guns in the book, and we'll get back to the movie scene in in a minute. M proceeds to brief Bond on this very cumbersome plot setup, which has to do with three weeks since Strangway's and True Blood have disappeared. Strangway's, a friend of Bond's, as it turns out, who we work with in Live and Let Die, uh, and is something of a womanizer, uh, M has decided that the two of them ran off together. But Bond pokes some holes in that because they don't have passports and nobody packed and left they've just they've just vanished and then to make matters worse strangways was investigating one dr no one dr julius no a chinese german it's always the mixed blood in Ian Fleming, right, that's right. problematic. Right. The, oppo- and, the opposite of and, true blood. blood. That's right. 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 And and then, because there are these spoonbills that are endangered who have been living on Crab Key <laughs> near Dr. <laughs> <That's> near <laughs> No's right. guano factory. That's right, Dr. <laughs> no is in the bird shit business yep. and has, um, with a Chinese labor force, has uh, managed to create an empire, uh, of uh, a financial empire out of the sale of, of bird poop and these Audubon fellows had gone in to... Um, to fight, do, for fight, fight for the Spoonvilles. Fight for the Spoonvilles. Obviously. And the first, the first guy is found, and he's barely alive, and he's been burned by what he claims to have been a dragon. And then two more guys fly in, and their plane crashes. And we've got a nice paragraph where Fleming name checks a bunch of different airplanes, and we'll have to get pictures of airplanes I love and that these guns. All the Audubon that all
2: Society the- has a quick reaction force that they can deploy <laughs> to protect food bills. <laughs> I know, right, Like, get to the everybody get to the Beechcraft Bonanza. We've got a scramble order. There's trouble off uh, the Bat Guano Island. I just, it's appalling. So the pres-
1: yeah, and so the pressure is on the British Secret <laughs> Service by the Americans, who can't seem to be able to investigate this Audubon tragedy themselves. And so um, it gets kicked up the chain to to M and mi5 to, to send James Bond in to find out exactly what's I forgot
2: going how on. poorly funded the CIA was under Eisenhower I, I forgot right They're just we're so busy <laughs> toppling countries that we just don't have time to actually investigate one island off Jamaica yeah uh,
0: the, this sense. this was all from Fleming's experience birdwatching right I think I believe this plot all came to mind when he was I think he was. He went to a small island to look at flamingos, I think it was, and there's was a, bas- a basalt mine there, and it all just spawned from that. He just There's Ian Fleming looking around at all his fellow bird watchers, imagining them getting killed and burned by some <laughs> dragon, and, and thinking, basalt's boring, let's make it bird shit instead. Um, you know, that's just how old, old Fleming worked, I guess. Quite a flamingo, eh? Yes, it is, Mr. <laughs> Fleming. I
2: say, what kind of hardware do you favor? Wait, I don't carry a gun. Wait, what? Yeah. No, I can. Yeah. How's
1: your yeah. quick response team? <laughs> to decides, excuse the, me. To deploy the Ottoman task force immediately. <laughs> yeah. But uh. but the chapter does end with um, with Bond trying to sneak that Beretta out, but um, but M stops him and doesn't allow him. And Bond says sort of to himself that he hates M at that point. And so this is the James Bond as rebellious young man, I'm petulant, yeah, and petul- against, and very petulant, yeah. And you've got you know the good old M with his damnable clear gray eyes, telling him he can't have his lady's gun back. Mm-hmm. And so the chapter ends there, which then will allow us to let's we'll we'll swing back around to the movie, and um, start all over again with James Bond coming out of the elevator into a hallway. And I'd never noticed this three signs. Did you? So there's three signs on the door on the wall. Yeah,
2: Universal's the bottom one, I
1: think. Yeah, one of them is Universal Exports. One of them is Adams and Adams Solicitors, and the other one is some guy who's also in the export business. Uh, where did? It go? Oh, James, James, Reed. James Reed. James Reed. James Reed uh, is also in exports. Yeah. So Bond walks down the hall to a door labeled Universal Exports. So my I just have this question if you start thinking about this is the entire british secret service run out of this 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 two room you know an empty yeah. room and m's office is like are is q branch like really is that adams and adams solicitors is that really <laughs> q branch right. is that yeah. james and It's all james a big Reed. front
2: right Right. makes you wonder what kind of clever names the Audubon Society operates under with right. all their military <laughs> units and their various <laughs> deployed units. Um, yeah, you're, you're right, because I now that I think about it, the door for Universal Exports is Moneypenny's office. So it is a two-room suite of offices, as opposed to um, the later films, which showed um, like Universal Exports from the outside as some impressive office building or something like that. Yeah. Right, uh, yeah. What do you think? Do you think oversight, or do you think deliberate? Do you think uh, we don't have a lot of money to make this movie, or do you think something is intended That's there?
1: probably part of what it is, and then they'll name-check Universal Exports for the fans of the series and um, not give it a heck of a lot of thought. But it is funny when you think about that, and where does it wind up in these later Bond films? You know, it's this gigantic building right. on the edge of the Thames. So, yeah. Um, you know, it well, it's interesting again. because
2: the radio room set was certainly not cheap, right? Uh, it was, uh, right. The, where they the Secret Service communicates all over the world, so you think they could have just I don't know thrown some desks or something and, and called at Universal Exports and had him walk through some kind of office bullpen or front office or something. But but you know it, if if we go by what M says in terms of having to catch the plane, it's 3:48 in the morning when Bond has this conversation with M. Right. Um, So I guess you would have an office that wouldn't be staffed or it's yeah I, I'm sort of speculating and, and trying to guess but at the end of the day, I think it's more a matter of production budget
1: Yeah, but that's me I think so too. I think you're I think you're absolutely right um, And of course unlike the book James Bond has his moment with Miss Moneypenny after tossing the hat which apparently was Terrence Young's idea uh, and then this flirtation with Miss Penny outside, which will become a, a rolling callback from movie to movie to movie. They're good uh, together lo- in
2: this movie. They're really sweet, like Connery doing his little lip pucker kisses, and it's actually a really nice interaction, I
1: think. Yeah, they dance a little bit, and Lois Maxwell said that she had invented her own backstory that years before, being older than Bond, they had, had gone away for a weekend together, and then had a lovely time and then realized that they both had their, their jobs ahead of them and it would never work, and so they have already had some kind of, you know, intimate relationship and, and now are just uh, good friends. Uh, that's That was the way that she... I think that's him. nicely
2: reflected in how they interact. I think this scene is it's very sweet. It, it reads nicely in terms of... And Connery is really good in the scene, you know? he. I mean, yes with Connor, you look at it and there's always the physical presence the physical grace that that you know the walk like a panther how he moves is so nice but he's really charming in this scene
0: if you're thinking about the reason for this scene from a storytelling and character building standpoint we don't have it in the book so this is an invention of the movie um and they couldn't have known that they were setting this precedent of you know an iconic scene that's going to occur movie after movie um, you see it as you know the steps of, of Bond's characterization we get uh, it's a mysterious guy he's very skilled at gambling uh, he, so he's skilled he's cool with the ladies he can make a date in about 30 seconds flat uh, with a woman yeah, he just yeah. took took a bunch of money away from um, And then we're gonna find out you know in the next scene how knowledgeable and capable uh, or at least uh, trustworthy of, a, of an agent he is so here let's see him actually be a human. Not a uh, a kind of cartoonish characterization of someone, but more of a human characterization of someone where he sits down and he's very tender with a person for a moment. And now I don't know how much that carries over through the franchise as being what the, what these scenes are about. But here it is. If it's the first time you're meeting James Bond, you're going, hey, hey, there's an actual guy in there. You know, this is an actual person. He has an actual relationship with someone. Um, whether uh, her her own backstory is in play at all or, or not, doesn't matter. There is a backstory. And, yeah. and we can tell that they've had history together in some way. And he's very sweet with her, you know. So I, I think that's a, a solid bit of characterization. Like I said, though, I don't think it carries. You know, I think that they kind of drop that over time, and it just becomes a cute, re- repeated bit. It but, does,
1: you're right. And, and she becomes this sort of lovelorn figure who's, who's secretly in love with Bond, and that changes. The, the same way as, as, you know, what happens between... Bond and M over the course of the films is it gets right. to the point where it seems like M really hates James Bond's guts by the time Roger <laughs> Moore shows up. I mean, M, they just seem to hate each other. So right. it's really interesting how that how that that sort of plays out.
0: Yeah, he, I mean, he just grows to be more and more of a dick, you know, over time. I, I always understand when M is frustrated with him. I'm like, well, look, in the last movie, he went off on a boat and disappeared with a woman. You know, that has got to be frustrating for your boss, yeah, uh, you exactly. know, and, and obviously money pinning. You always start you start to feel for her more and more as the series goes on as well. It's kind of an unfair characterization of her, uh, too, that they decided to go with with this love, Lauren, like you said, uh, figure. Where I, I now appreciate very much the the new, bo- the new Money Penny. I like that she's a field agent. I like all those things about her. Now I like I like Money Penny with agency. I guess.
1: Uh, so from Miss Money Penny's office, we go in to meet M, and we see his office for for the first time. And what's interesting about this is again Ken Adam, the production designer, wanting to build a contrast between the quasi high tech radio room that we've just seen, um, filled with uh, parts that were set to be sent to the airport in Delhi and hadn't been sent off yet, so they got a hold of them and used those for, their, for the radio receivers. And then we go into this very traditional British naval officer's uh, old-timey kind of office, and Ken Adam has lamented that in those first couple of movies, the paneling was wallpaper, the quote-unquote leather door was plastic. And so he was really sort of stitching it together from whatever he could find and get it together as quickly as possible uh, before you know they start shooting. In fact, these were the first scenes that were done at Pinewood, these, these scenes with um, Money, Penny, and M. And so that, that was a set that um, had been very hastily put together and would eventually uh, be totally redone by the time they got a whole bunch of money and they get to Goldfinger. They can use the real... The real materials for everything in this in this set, but we don't think we don't think much of it. Uh, and Bond sits down uh, after this question of whether you know he ever sleeps, and it Bill it starts the antagonism right off the bat between the two of them. M's disapproval of Bond, which will as we just said, will yeah. But become. does M
2: ever sleep? It's quarter to four in the morning.
1: Yeah, what's he been doing? Smoking a lot of tobacco. Apparently, in the book, his tobacco is kept in an old. 14-pound uh, uh, shell of, a, of an Old Navy uh, shell, you know, from a cannon, <laughs> and, and it's been turned into a, a tobacco holder, but I don't notice that <laughs> on his desk in this particular case. So I don't think he gets his, his tobacco from that. Um,
2: I do like that he, he doesn't have the match and Bond offers his lighter and M instantly ignores the lighter and goes for
1: Totally ignores it, just blows him off and walks over to the fireplace. It's a really interesting power dynamic that plays out visually in the movie. And that's, it's, it's giving well, us information.
0: A lighter's also in, uh, improper to, to light that, isn't it? The, uh, sorry, am I wrong? Is it, he's, well, a
1: match is better, no doubt yeah, about it. A, yeah. match, a match is better for a pipe.
0: Or, or a stick of wood, even without the flint. Uh, If you Uh can light that first and then light, it just uh, doesn't mess with the flavor. If I remember my smoking uh, etiquette correctly. All I know
2: about pipes is for crack ones, just use an SOS pad for a filter. That's all I remember
1: from crack pipes. Oh, for sure. So the briefing takes place in the reverse order of the book. He's going to get the information up front about where he's going, the fact that the transmission from Jamaica just ended. There's no indication that and Strangways know each other, Bond says he doesn't know him. Uh and so we've got to get to the heart of what happened to these to this agent. And that is the Dr. No idea hasn't even been thrown out yet. I mean, we saw the files that were stolen with Doctor No and Crab Key, but we're ahead of James Bond and him on this on this thing. You know, whereas in the book they're already got their sights on Doctor No. That's not the case here at all. So they mention uh, a CIA agent, one Felix Leiter, and again, in other, if in the book series that doesn't happen because Bond has already interacted with Leiter, and and uh, that's not the case in the movies. So we're setting that up. So that's a new, a new dynamic, a new character. And, uh, and we have then, Bond
2: show off his erudition by knowing what Toppling is, which is the first yeah. example of Bond knowing something very obscure. Um, you know, I think back to sort of the orchids in Moonraker, right, where he actually corrects Q on, on where the Orchidea Negro was right. found. This is kind of an example. What the hell would he know about toppling, right? It's, it's a phenomenon that's probably brand new because NASA's only recently started launching rockets, and yet here it is. It's something he knows. And he, oh, I, I, I kind of think it's this when, in fact, it's exactly that.
0: See, and I think, yeah, and I think he's playing off like in later incarnations of Bond, he's very quick to be overly informed about Saki and stuff like that, you know. But here it seems like he's playing it off just a little bit, but he does know exactly what it is. He, but he goes, oh, I think it's uh, radio waves or something like that. You know, he's, I think he's purposefully playing it off.
1: It's respectful. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's respect between, between them right now, and there's a real honest-to-God power dynamic, and that was going to get eventually kind of thrown out the window, and you kind of realize in the later movies that that, uh, that Bond is just an annoyance to M, and M is kind of a necessary annoyance to Bond. And It's, it's not as rich as this. And again, sure. it comes back to Connery, who's really working hard in this movie. I mean, it's effortless performance, but you know, Terrence Young said that he really knew he was going to make a mark with this role, and so he's very controlled. And of course, he's playing off of Bernard Lee, who... Is a veteran British actor. Um, you probably know him from *The Third Man*, and and British audiences would have recognized him from a string of movies. So there's a really interesting fencing match that's going on between these two men.
2: So you think Bond qualifies his answer so as not to steal M's thunder to an extent?
1: Yeah, I think he's he's being deferential. Yeah, there's none of the hatred in the book the petulance in the book, and because it's a different dynamic by that point and,
0: and you know this is, could be said to be another example of where our more contemporary bond writers um look back at this and say well look there's a a fleshed out kind of rich relationship between bond and m let's do that again and it's it's framed differently now with you know or has been with with daniel craig and judy dench but there they are they, they go why can't why shouldn't we have a rich relationship? why does it just have to be like this surface contention Let's let's have something behind it. And so I don't know. I, I think as we go along in this movie, maybe the next movie, it'll start to fall away as we go ahead uh, forward further. But we might see where our, our contemporary Bond writers are looking back at the very early incarnations of these films and seeing good ideas and saying, well, what they forget that idea for? Let's bring that back.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think when you watch it evolve with two Terrence Young pictures, and you can't take the director out of the equation. True, I think, yeah. And then what Guy Hamilton brings to the mix, then you go back to Terrence Young, and then you have you know Louis Gilbert and Peter Hunt, and then you get back to to Guy Hamilton again. It's just really interesting to see what these what flavors these different directors bring to this formula. You know, and it's still a formula, but it, yeah. it shifts and changes, which is part of the fun of, of doing the podcast. Um, then. The armorer comes in. The armorer Boothroyd. We meet Re- Boothroyd, played by one Peter Burton, who apparently was offered the job again for From Russia with Love and took a different job, which never even happened. And so he was friends <sighs> with Terence Young, and apparently he would lament this for years <laughs> no uh, that he made the wrong choice. But I don't know. He doesn't have the. He doesn't come in and own the room the way that Desmond Llewellyn does in no. From Russia with Love when we get there.
0: No, I I, I mean, bad choice for him, maybe good choice for us.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, who knows? Who knows? Maybe he's a great actor. Maybe he was going to evolve the character. I don't know. But um, yeah, boy, that has to eat you up, though. <laughs> Making that choice, that's got to eat you up a lot. This but, scene just
2: amazes me, because let's remember, it's quarter to four in the morning. And yet, boom, armor, come on in. So the armor is there at four in the morning, perfectly, immaculately turned out just like m just like money penny at four in the morning it's so crazy like nobody's like all all we get is one touch do you do you ever sleep that's it that's it he doesn't remark on the fact that i'm here that these people are here do they ever sleep apparently not but it just cracks me up that it's quarter to four in the morning and they're doing it business like it's noon
0: we didn't even think we didn't even talk about money penny. Like right. the fact that she's just sitting in her office doing paperwork or whatever it I getting caught up at on that big the,
2: inbox I guess at 4 in the uh, morning. Poor man. I'm penny. just snowed under James <laughs> apparently. <laughs> apparently. Just cracks me up that it's it's this it's this hour and the whole office the, their moderate immediate staff is still there just like it's noon.
1: They're just gonna keep this movie rolling. I, yeah, I and mean, you you're gotta right. give them credit. you know, the idea was just keep it happening. Don't go back to the same set more than once. Just move this baby along. And so one line of dialogue kind of plays off that it's late and nobody addresses anything right. else about just, it. We've just got to get on with right. some business, so let's uh, talk about guns.
2: It, it helps to be single to work at this particular intelligence agency, evidently, not have uh, some spouse waiting for you to come home. So, yeah, he comes in, and he's got his little wooden box, and M begins with the somewhat startling command, take off your jacket.
1: Which, which Bond actually does very elegantly and drapes it over the back of that chair. And again, you know, very submissive in the sense that, you know, we know who's boss in this room yeah. and we know who's calling the shots. Even though Connery <laughs> owns
2: it, he's in amazing shape and that tailored tuxedo looks amazing on him. I mean, you just the, the guy is a work of art in this movie. He looks stunning. And there's his his sporty blue holster and let me have your gun and he hands and it's this damn Beretta again. And unfortunately, the movie makes a, a bit of a flub because the um, the in the book, it's a Beretta 418, which is a teeny tiny gun. It fits in a purse. It shoots at 25. It's tiny. But what we see in the movie is a, a Beretta M1934, which actually is a 9mm. And so when the armorer addresses, he says, no stopping power. In fact, it actually has better stopping power than the Walther that he's replacing it with. That's just a movie little flub, but it cracks me up. Also, the fact that he, they talk repeatedly about the walter ppk but in fact all the movies um all the guns in the movie uh, are walter pp's uh pistol polizai as opposed to the ppk pistol polizai kurz or the shortened version of it so i i think it's because maybe the barrels were threaded for silencers or whatever but um in the in the movie they actually have walter pp's not ppk's a little bit of trivia if you like that sort of thing huh
1: Pretty nice, Jason. That's cool. why we asked you to come to the party, baby.
2: I don't want to say that I own guns because I don't own a lot, but I own a few.
1: That's all you, do you ha- You don't have a Walter, though, do you?
2: I don't. Um, I've shot one, um, and um, it's interesting. The uh, sales of the PPK skyrocketed after the Bond films, um, just like the Walter P99 sales skyrocketed after Pierce Brosnan used it in Tomorrow Never Dies when they decided to transition him to a more modern gun. Thankfully, they went back. To the PPK, which is just such an elegant, perfect spy gun. I totally get why Fleming would have would have chosen that. It's um, it, what's what's interesting though. In, in Doctor No, we get another film flub. uh oh, I, I don't know if I'll be there for this, so I'll just say when he shoots Professor Dent, um, he's actually not using a Walter either. He's using um, a Belgian, like an FN, I think an M1910, and he pulls the silencer out, indicating that it's actually just a dowel stuck in the barrel because you don't. <laughs> Because they're threaded, right? You don't just tug them off. But he does that and blows on it and looks amazingly cool. But it's not a Walther PPK.
1: Well, Well, I think the whole question of the Smith & Wesson and having your six, I think, might be a little tricky, too. Yeah, they didn't make
2: 1911-style guns either, but that's all right. We're going to ignore it because the whole scene plays so cool.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. The whole scene plays so cool with such authority and and Connery's ability to kind of— Lose, you know. I mean, he doesn't really want to give up his Beretta, and so there's a. It's got an inherent tension, and it makes the scene, you know, pretty nice actually.
2: Yeah, with his attempts to deflect a little bit, I haven't missed with it yet, and um, and and the ambivalence with which he he submits, but you know, he does his little ways the gun, uh, and and feels the gun, tucks it in, and that's it. He's not gonna say one way or another how he really feels about it. He's gonna just kind of. Toe the line a little bit, live up to the letter of the law, and then sneak his own gun out again.
1: Right. Did you notice that when M says, since I've been the director of MI...
2: Yes, that it, he clearly says the word six, but they dub it over and it sounds like seven, which is weird.
1: Yeah, right? and yeah. and. But, but what's the reality? Would it be MI5 or MI6?
2: MI6. MI5 is uh, is the... Uh, M- MI6 is basically CIA. MI5 is FBI. It's domestic. Yeah. So he would be MI6, um, and yet it comes out... he They dub in Seven, which I don't quite understand. Maybe they're trying to make it uh, a sort of fictional agency. Maybe there's this attempt to make it something because... Remember with the, the awful Barry Nelson thing? Um, it was he was James Jimmy Bond of quote combined intelligence, right? So that was this fictional thing. So I wondered if they were trying to say MI seven right. was was some fictional thing. That
0: was a terrible name for some combined. It makes it sound like everybody everybody's stupid until they all get together. They're <laughs> well, all together we're intelligent. See, right?
2: If they get the hive mind going, they'll <laughs> right. figure out the problem and how to topple That's the leader
0: of Guatemala. That's
1: funny. Jason, you may be right because I know that the producers were always really nervous about making things too close to real international political organizations. And that's why, you know, Smirsh immediately becomes um, a ruse because it's really Spectre that's behind all of this. And so they worked really hard to try to avoid real world political Dynamics, and so maybe you're right. Maybe this MI7 was going to be some kind of special version of MI6. I blew it
2: up. I zoomed in on his mouth and watched, and he clearly says MI6. He clearly says it. Um, but do you hear this weird sort of dubbed over seven? That's you can very,
1: barely understand that he says seven too. Right,
2: because they have to make it fit in the sixth spot, and it's it's one, it's two syllables becoming one, and it's not really well executed, even by someone so so good at
1: ADR as Bernard Lee but God bless Peter Hunt for pulling it off because I hadn't noticed it until this time. And I bet I've seen this movie, you know, 50 times or something. Yeah. So, I, I yeah. remember
2: when the blu-ray first came out, you know, you and I were super excited because MGM had spent a huge amount of money making an incredible transfer and we watched it. And sure enough, it was phenomenal. And I, I, I think that we were probably so beguiled by the physical, by the uh, the visual beauty of it that we didn't quite focus on the uh, little hiccup when, and blurts out is the wrong place to work.
1: Uh, it really is the genius of Peter Hunt. He 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 did so many there when we're going to see a lot of other things as as we go deeper into this movie of things that Peter Hunt brings to the equation both as an editor um, and second unit director that really kind of elevates these movies and it it's great that he finally got to finally direct one because he became he was second unit director all the way up till uh up to The, the Only Live Twice and then Got to, to unleash his
2: famous windmill punch idea. That's and, right. <laughs> thank God for that. The That's windmill, right. The windmill punch. Still, it's a town. Pete Townsend invents it for the guitar, and he's like, "I think I can do that too with my yeah. James Bond." Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's an amazing move. But yeah, I, I love the scene with. Um, again, to me, it's t- it's tough to get away from the fact that it's the middle of the night, but that all this business is being transacted in time to get him aboard. You know whatever Pan Am Clipper or BOAC plane is going to whisk him to Jamaica and, uh, and his fate there in three hours. That, that, I think that's kind of a in live and let die, isn't he? He, he comes on like Pan Am and he has to leave immediately. That's right. He is he, he gets interrupted early in the morning with the Italian secret yeah. agent, Miss Caruso. Right. And yeah, you have yeah. to get on the plane in one hour. And I think that often happens where they book his travel and then tell him what's going on.
1: And yeah, he's got a lot of, uh, Got a, got a lot of work to do over the next three hours as we will see in our next episode. a lot of trenches to go through oh. if I if I might
0: oh. Oh. Yeah. Oh. so or, or so, trenches yeah. to leave behind Well I, I wanted yeah. to bring up a couple of things in the dialogue here. We haven't really talked that much. we talked a lot about the 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 scene and how it played out in the book but not exactly like drawn the direct differences. Uh, like you said Mitch, this movie is interested in moving forward, right We're, We want to get this going. So we front load this scene with the information we need about the plot, right? Not only for the reason of getting the movie going, but also because we have a different opening and introduction for Bond. We don't have anything to talk about but the plot. Let's just there's no hospital injury situation to talk about. Let's just get into it. Um, so when Boothroyd comes in, we get a very similar scene. There's a small change of dialogue where uh, that I enjoy, and I don't know which way I like it more. But when he feels the weight of the gun, I, I think in the book he doesn't even feel the weight of the gun. Uh, M just asks him, what do you think of the bread? And he, and he says, oh, lady's gun, sir, is what he says, just like flatly. Where here he feels the weight of it, says, and compliments the gun and then throws a little jibe. Uh, a little jab uh, that's perfect for a lady's handbag. So this a little different. Connery's
1: reaction, by the way, if you haven't noticed it, just watch Connery react yeah. to Major Boothroyd through this whole scene yeah. and you realize who's the star of this movie. <laughs> he is so good.
0: But we do get, you know, in the small argument about the the stopping power of the Bretta and, and Bond claiming that it's never failed him, we do get mentioned that there was an incident that caused him to go to the hospital. In the, the timeline of the movies, we're not talking about Rosa Klebb poisoning him with her spiked boot uh right. but we are talking about something has happened to bond before so we're, we're touching base with the book in that sense yeah and uh so so kind of just reversing the order of things still giving us that
1: information and there's a question of what tops what and right. in terms of this scene the conflict comes at the back end of the scene with right boothroyd and bond wanting to slip out with the beretta and so yeah they get the briefing uh, over with first whereas in the book it's flipped around uh, because there's so much more exposition that needs to be laid out by, by the writer. And we have very little exposition. In fact, the new idea of the toppling isn't in the book at all. Right. So this adds the new science fiction angle to the story. or, or Science high fact. Tech, science right? Fact. Yeah, science fact. I'm sorry, you're right, science <laughs> fact. Um, but adds that as a new flavor for this book, uh, maybe inspired by Moonraker the novel, but to, to kind of telegraph to the audience that we are on the cutting edge of- right
2: well i think you know dr no having you know a, a nuclear power or an atomic reactor right i mean that's that's ragged bleeding edge for that that period too and i think you're right it, it kind of um nudges things into to say you know we're, we're we're almost in the future that's how modern this is but i wanted to ask do you think that because the gun swap scene isn't really necessary you know, you could start with Bond having an, a, a Walter PPK in his in in his shoulder holster on his way to Jamaica. Why do you think the scenes in there to show a little deference to M to show that M's on his on, on on top of things or or Bond's deference to M? Why do you think that that scene was necessary to move from the book into the movie? Either one of you.
0: That's a really good question. And, and as you're asking it, I'm thinking it through, and all I can really come up with off the top of my head right now is uh, the moment where he takes the Beretta at the end. We get a little hint at what bond, the potential of bond to be a, a rebellious young man and clever. Yeah. He, he is different. He is more like a child getting, not getting scolded, but being instructed and, and knowing his place and saying, okay, fine. Um, on the surface. I mean, I, I've got a kid that does stuff like this. You know, I explained something to, to my son and this is how it's going to be. And he agrees. And then he picks up the thing that he wasn't supposed to have and slips it in his pocket without me seeing it. And I think that we may be getting just a little bit of petulant child here. Um, Not sure if that's what they intended to do with him and expound upon that throughout the series. Maybe this is also they were planning on hopefully making more. Let's have this be the, the starting point for him and Bond's relationship. And we can see where Bond maybe will become more and more petulant and rebellious over time. That's all I can really think of. It's certainly not necessary to this film. It might be a little bit more of a franchise obligation kind of thing, but who
1: knows? What is necessary becomes the question with adaptation. And part of it is, well, we are supposed to be making a movie out of the book Dr. No. And I think in the hands of a competent screenwriter, a good screenwriter, you want to kind of pay as much attention to what works in the book and what was unique in the book to give it its own individual flavor, and so my guess is that Maybaum thought, "Oh, that's pretty interesting. We get to see the hardware. We, so he has a license to kill because M says you you've got a license to kill, not get killed. We have to get that information out, so that's important. And just the just the instinct of moving the conflict to the end of the scene, so that there's tension and and interesting stuff going on is I just think a, a really smart
2: oh I think it works incredibly well I just it's its interesting it's because as you said the movie is kind of relentless in, in its in its forward progress um you know, we've we've got to get him out of there, get him moving, get him briefed, get him moving again. And so here's this tiny little moment, and I wondered, is it is it? Do we want to you know give a little hint of the 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 secrets of the Secret Service, and these are what intelligence guys are like. And and you're right, to a cer- certain extent, the hardware, because it goes into very specific things about the hardware, the caliber of the weapon, and and what kind of silencer it takes, and things like that. The fact that they did not mention. Burns martin triple draw holster is actually a little bit surprising given the specifics that they touched on in the other parts of it and i was just kind of curious because it is a little bit of a pause in a movie that has been having that that has accrued a great deal of momentum and that will not really stop until bond you know i don't know gets in the chevy bel-air with with his killer so
1: we we don't know he's licensed to kill
0: you're right. So that's a good way to work it in. Do either of you have any memory of a film before this that did anything like this? Because, like you said, Mitch, it's it's bringing a new idea and like kind of planting a flag in the genre. If you're, well, we're going to make this unique movie like nobody's ever seen. I don't. I can't. I watched a lot of war movies uh, that had a lot of spies. You know, growing up from the 40s, 50s, and even the 60s, and I, I don't recall there being. A moment where they took the time to explain the hardware this way. So simply put, it could just be them, like you said, Mitch, looking at the book and saying, finding that unique thing and saying, this is where we're going to plant a flag in the genre. Um, this is something that nobody's seen before. Even if it's, it pauses us for a moment, hell, it's really interesting. And it becomes this massively interesting thing. Throughout the franchise where they, it becomes absurd (laughs) through time as, well, the gun, a pistol isn't all that uh, nearly as interesting as a flamethrower or a poison you know, a dart shooting watch or whatever it may be but yeah so again though do they did they foresee this as being something they wanted to expound upon maybe a little bit well i
2: do like giving the hint of his history too and knowing letting us know that he's fallible you know you screwed up and you ended up in the hospital because you stick with this gun and and i I like that that there's a little hint of you know continuity here that that Bond has a career you know he's not just a guy getting called in and that he and M have some history as well and I like that so I, I guess the more I talk about it the more I could see certainly the benefits to it it's just um, like I said it's a little bit not incongruous but it's it's um, a pause in a movie that has not had any pauses thus far so I, were, I I like it though very much they
1: were definitely determined to make a series and so. Terrence Young said he was hoping that this would make its money back in maybe two or three months and they'd have enough that people would feel like it was worth making a second film. And so they they were probably looking at the Fleming books and saying what formula does exist and building these recurring characters right off the bat who aren't in Dr. No but are in the other books um, is probably part of that, like you said, John, planting a flag or building a foundation for something that's going to happen again and again. Lois Maxwell said it was the smallest part she had ever had in her career. She needed money because her husband had had a heart attack. She knew Terrence Young. She asked to have the job. He gave it to her, and she had no idea that it would turn into something that would really identify her with a character for her entire career
2: now in the book doesn't uh, bond actually sits on m's lap and flirts with m in the book right <laughs> that's
1: right <laughs> well, yes, they have their right. little moment in the uh, book
0: in the book i wrote the the, the the yeah the slash fiction that i wrote that that does happen to, i forgot you read that you proofread that your, for me
2: it beats your tiresome wharf data slash fiction god oh. knows
0: Tiresome only to you. That's very popular series I have going on.
1: And
2: Star Trek's been touched on. Felt good. Felt yes.
0: good.
1: Yeah, felt good. <laughs> got, we, we, it's, that's two, two for two, so we're doing great. Um, well, with that, I think we come to the end of the <laughs> With that minutes. audible
2: bottoming out of the podcast. Yes, we've, <laughs> we've <laughs> come, come to the end. Yes, Guys, I am so grateful you decided to, to call me in on this one. It's um, a movie that I adore. And uh, certainly it's seven minutes that I adore because it is arguably the greatest screen introduction in history. I mean, you, you know, there there are a few. Uh, you, you can do Darth Vader walking into the, the corridor of the V 4 or you can, you can, I mean, you could do Henry Fonda, and Once Upon a Time in the West, there are a few to, to choose from. This one, I think, tops them all in terms of screen intros.
0: I think you're right. I mean, it's really hard to think of what, everybody knows it. Even people, you know, there are. A lot of people that know Bond and have seen many, many Bond films that have never seen Dr. No, I, it's a strange thing. It's, for some reason, as a first movie, it's often ignored by, by, by people. I, I know it's the one, it's the Connery movie I've seen the least by far other than Diamonds are forever, but you know, we won't even talk about that yet. Hopefully never. And, uh,
2: <laughs> Do you uh think t- it, TBS works so hard for everybody in America to see every bond film, right? You know, you'd figure that the Dr. No would have just been in the background of somebody's life.
0: I just didn't, I didn't see Dr. No very much growing up. So, but everybody knows this shot. Every, I bet you, if you went out and uh, showed the showed just that shot where he says, Bond, James Bond, um, To people on the street, they would go, "Oh yeah, that's from Goldfinger," or "Oh yeah, that's from," and they would just name whatever Connery movie they know best because they assume that this iconic moment has to come from the movie they've seen the most because they've seen this moment even if they haven't seen the movie that much. You get what I mean? It's kind of strange. It's kind of a strange phenomenon. It's just one of those things that becomes part of the culture, even if you haven't seen the movie. Everybody knows this moment.
2: And is it true that the uh, the aggressively cool lighter flick? between Bond and James Bond, was Connery's choice?
0: Yes. It was. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, Nice choice. Well, one thing I wanted to say earlier, I didn't really get a chance to bring this up, and I never really thought of it this way, but Sylvia Trich is actually the one that introduces herself that way first. And I, I wonder, within the timeline of the movie, has Bond ever introduced himself this way until now or is he just parroting her and then went mental, <laughs> mental, bad, mental you're mental right, mental there's a little way.
2: flirtation going on across yeah. the table already
0: she That's says trench sylvia trench and then he says bond james bond so i'm thinking the bond's biting sylvia here i think he took i think he stole this intro from her i never thought about it until today but you might so be i'm going with her, that
1: we have sylvia trench to thank for that yeah. in the movies yeah the Apparently, derivative and boring james bond the Bond, James Bond, was Richard Maybaum because in the other books that he, when he introduces himself, in one case it's "I'm James Bond," and then there was another one, and so yeah, it's or, or my name is Bond, James Bond. But he just, you know, cut all that out and had the that iconic. But but Terrence Young said it wasn't working until Connery flicked that lighter, well, and he- that somehow that just made it click. <laughs>
0: Cool. I, I did hear that he tried to, I'm James Bond and you're not at
1: one point, but that, <laughs> that didn't go over either. It, just right. didn't, it, it was too ahead of its time. With that, it's always better to have a um, an unexpected conclusion to our show, isn't it?
2: Isn't I mean, it? I sure. think, right? Isn't it? It turns out that we land the plane after all.
1: This is sort of, yeah. sort of like Bond,
0: laying almost dead from fugu poisoning at the end of From Rush with Love. Like we just, yeah. it kind yeah, of sets a weird tone, that. but we know, you know, we'll be back.
1: Fugu so, Jason, thank you for being the Joe Petroni, isn't that his name? Of our,
0: our uh, uh... they don't even call him
2: uh, disasters anymore. They call him Petronis. That's right. They call me <laughs> in so often. They call him Petronis now at the airport. Guys, I can't, I couldn't be happier. I, I love both of you, and I love doing this because I definitely love James.
1: We'll see you back the next time for another episode down the line, Jason. You're, you're not out of this yet.
2: God bless all here.
1: <laughs> all right, John. Uh, we should say visit us over at the Facebook page. We're going to start uh, putting lots of cool pictures up. And if you, if you found any products that we didn't name check from the book for this uh, this chapter, let us know. And we'll try to find a picture of it and get that up on the, on the Facebook page as well. Right. And uh, I'm sure there will be gun pictures and car pictures and all sorts of excitement out there.
0: And come over to our Patreon page at uh, patreon.com forward slash alien minute. We're going to keep the Patreon over there, but we'll probably be doing a little bit more Bond content over there and and all the other miscellaneous films that we cover uh, in commentaries or quadfectas or whatever we decide. We kind of do... It's kind of a potpourri.
1: Yeah, Jason, we're going to do that commentary for North by Northwest. Would
2: love to do North by Northwest. I, it's the first James Bond movie in some ways. I love it.
1: That's right. That's right. So we'll put that on the on the to do list, and uh, we'll see you all back next time for minutes uh, fourteen through twenty
2: one. I thought the sign-off was right. "I'll see you in the Funny Papers." We were do- we're not doing that. <sighs> oh no. God, sorry. Sorry. See you next time. It's
1: okay. All
0: right. Bye. Thanks, bye.